Welcome to Medical Educator Talks. Hello and welcome to this special conference episode of Medical Educate Talks. My name is Tom and I am one of the Developing Medical Educators Committee. And today I'm joined by Mr. Shakir Mustafa, Consultant Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeon, as well as being the Associate Medical Director for Education at Cumtaf Morganug University Health Board. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So um, I've given a very brief introduction there. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So um, I'm a, um, a, a Maxvax or maxillofacial surgeon by trade, um, and that requires a medical degree and a dental degree. So I did dentistry first and trained in dentistry in, in uh, Baghdad University um, before coming back to the UK uh, to resume my training. Uh, I did... Uh, senior house officer and house officer jobs in, in oral and maxillofacial surgery for two years and then uh, went back to medical school as a mature student. I did a four-year graduate course and qualified from Cardiff University. Uh, after that, I took up uh, training in oral and maxillofacial surgery, started with basic surgical training, did uh, emergency medicine, general surgery, as well as finishing my house officer year the year before that. Um, which is now equivalent to um, foundation year one. And then from there on, I did my higher specialty training um, in oral and maxillofacial surgery in South Wales as well, and was lucky enough to have some travel fellowships and some uh, interface fellowships here in the UK. Um, and upon completing my training, I took up post as a maxillofacial surgeon in Kumtaf Murganuk, which was Kumtaf University Health Board then. Um, this was a very uh, rewarding and fun journey, albeit quite lengthy, um, and it was a learning experience every day of the week uh, throughout the years that I've been involved in, in, uh, in, my, in my own training, as well as teaching and training others, as I firmly believe that uh, the best way to uh, learn is to teach. Um, and I've been involved in teaching and training ever since my days um, as a postgraduate uh, dental um, officer, if you like, um, in the Department of Oral Surgery. Uh, and then from there up, from then on, uh, I taught dental and medical students uh, throughout my years in medical school as well. Um, and then I wanted to do a little bit more when I was a, a trainee, so I did some bedside teaching, did some teaching and training courses, became an advanced trauma life support instructor. Um, and then upon taking on post in um, as a consultant in in Kumtap Morganuk um, I uh, embarked on a medical education uh, master's degree um, and that was fantastic because it uh, it's underpinned my practice in good educational theory and it also helped me with new tools and uh, and, and ways of teaching and, and making a better teacher of myself and it also broadens your horizon because there's a hidden curriculum there and the people you meet and the, the ideas you share will inevitably shape your your uh, sort of future career and educational endeavours. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Um, so quite, um, quite a wide-ranging, really, um, journey to where you are today. Um, 
so we know you're currently a max fax surgeon but began life in dental school um how did you find life in dental school and were, were there any memorable teaching experiences either um teaching others or being taught yourself yeah so um as as a as a dental student back in the early 1990s showing my age now um it was quite different because the, the the dental course is a practical course for the majority of it. There's a lot of hands-on from early on in, in the course. And also, um, back in the day, it was a great deal of it was very didactic and uh, very sort of um, uh, unidirectional, if you like. There was less emphasis on group teaching, less emphasis on interactive teaching. Uh, so in terms of the practical skills, we were taught it very well. Um, uh, but in terms of the uh, interaction uh, and the, the, the small group discussions, there wasn't a great deal of emphasis on that. And as we all know, uh, learning through interactive uh, means and learning through storytelling or indeed through uh, case-based discussions uh, make a great deal of sense because it's part of the experiential learning process and it's part of... Uh, it lends itself, as all healthcare, in my view, lends itself to a more constructivist approach in, to learning, both in terms of the cognitive aspect of construction of the construction of knowledge, as well as the social constructivism, which means learning through being part of a community of practice. Um, and I think there was less emphasis on that, both in dentistry and medicine in the early years than there are in, in more recent uh, years. If, uh, if if that yeah if that makes sense no no and that, that was one of the questions here really how have you noticed over um, the course of your career how education has changed so kind of tackled that yeah there as well is there, is there anything else you've noticed that has changed over over the years so I think um, greater emphasis on um, the adult learning theories and the fact that for learning to take place it needs to be relevant. It needs to be beneficial to the learner and it is important that adult learners are treated exactly that as adults uh, because we need to empower trainees and students to take charge of their own learning. It is a transition, it is difficult when they first start, our medical students and dental students or any healthcare students really, because you are taught in school, rightly or wrongly, to study, to pass exams and do a bit of coursework on the side. And, but you are, to a degree, um, you're not taught about the learning inquiry itself as well, necessarily. And you are, to a degree, spoon-fed, aren't you, in school. And then we notice the difference by having a case-based learning um, curriculum, like the Cardiff curriculum or the Bristol curriculum, for instance, in medical school, that students struggle for the first couple of years until the penny drops is that they drive that learning process. And that happens maybe halfway through the third year into the fourth year that I need to take charge and I need to coordinate and organize. And that, that lends itself quite well to the adult learning theory. Um, and, and I think what is good in, in learning in healthcare is that it is it is an apprenticeship model, but that apprenticeship model needs to be backed up by the theory and the cognitive development um, of that theory to build knowledge. Definitely. No, thank you.
Um, earlier on, you mentioned uh, initially training in Baghdad. How did you find that experience and um, how did that education shape your future career? Um, I was privileged in the sense that they were relatively good years before, uh, unfortunately, things um, deteriorated in, in, in Iraq. Um, and I, I wouldn't change a thing personally. I had a really good time. Uh, but as you can imagine, it was my first time round in, in, in university. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a good work-life balance at the time. I managed to focus on my studies as well as have, uh, have lots of fun. We were, we were taught reasonably well, um, but towards the end of that phase, there were some difficult times because of the uh, political situation and the, uh, the sanctions in Iraq at the time and the, the, the very uh, sort of uh, limited um, medical and dental supplies at the time, that there was arguably some some difficulty or challenges on on um, getting the the right materials or, or, or indeed enough of them, but that that didn't stop us. We did we did manage to complete our training and and uh, and graduate. Um, but I have uh, a great deal of uh, I, I have lots of very fond memories of, of my time there. Um, I was I was privileged in a way that. Um, uh, my my parents were training in in the UK when I was born, and and therefore I was, uh, I I was, sort of British by birth, and I lived the first few years of my life here before, uh, before my parents moved back to work back in back in Baghdad, um, and therefore I had the best of both worlds, as it were, because I had an early sort of British upbringing, um, and was familiar with the early schooling system, and then went and finished my schooling in Iraq and, and then had the privilege to come back and live here and train here uh, and uh, and that has helped shape my career because I've seen it from from a multicultural perspective and I think it it makes me more aware and potentially more sensitive to cultural differences and 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 not just in terms of um, different cultures but also different personalities and different um, different people and different learning needs and learning style depending on what type of person you are in terms of your background as well as your personality or your neurodiversity as 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 one might say because we're all very different aren't we um, and and therefore it helps that you have an awareness of having the ability to appreciate your learners and what their learning needs are and how different they might be um, and coming from a different background or having the benefit of having a, a multicultural upbringing uh, has, has helped significantly in that sense. Oh, and that's interesting to hear really. Um, would you say um, there was different styles of learning when, you know, in Baghdad compared to the UK? Would you say education was similar or any stark differences between I think education was very similar because in in university in Iraq certainly I mean we were taught in English and they follow the British and American systems of of education and curricula have developed and evolved accordingly Um, I think the sanctions and the the because the embargo was not just on on oil and food and and supplies it was it was a scientific embargo as well which is very very sad through the sanctions on, on Iraq at the time. So we struggled to get 
up-to-date scientific evidence. And as you can imagine, the internet wasn't back in the early 90s as it is <laughs> no. now, very prevalent, and you had to rely on books, and they were in short supply. Uh, so that, in that sense, that was a bit of a, a bit of a struggle. Um, but also, I think it's fair to say that education has evolved significantly from being very unidirectional and didactic uh, and, and lecture-based and spoon-feeding-based 25, 30 years ago compared to what it is now based on sort of learner-centered and more of a um, sort of interactive way of learning. And I think it's fair to say that learning aids across the world have changed and evolved and developed significantly in the way in way of simulation also in way of immersive learning augmented and virtual reality uh, to name to name but a few absolutely and um, it's, it's developing all the time really week on week mm, absolutely we, we'll wait and see what the future holds with that indeed um so um essentially um in your current role as um the associate Correct me if I'm wrong here. So the Associate Medical Director for Education. Yep. How did you come to be in, to, in that role? Was there a step into that role? Could you tell listeners how, how you came to that, be in that role? Was it a gradual progression? or? Sure. So as a, as a, as a healthcare professional or a, a consultant, you are expected to have uh, extended roles and responsibilities. So it's not just your daily jobbing surgeon or jobbing physician or your daily clinical uh, work. You are expected to be an academic, a scholar, a researcher. You're also expected to be an advocate for your patients, but also for your staff and for your learners. You're expected to be a teacher um, and and an educator and a trainer by virtue of your role. Uh, and, and luckily enough for me, I was always interested in teaching and training, as I alluded to um, just uh, a few minutes ago. And therefore, I saw myself developing my role as an educator and teacher, uh, taking centre stage in terms of the additional things that we're expected to do as, um, as consultants or as, as healthcare uh, professionals. So that has helped me significantly. My interest in education has helped me significantly choose that educational path for myself because you can either go in scientific research or you can go into management and leadership and clinical leadership and service development or indeed you go into educational leadership and that's the path I chose for myself. Um, So I have two roles as it were. I have the role of the educational leader but also the role of the teacher that I treasure very much Um, and I'm in my state of flow as it were when I'm teaching where time just flows quite nicely and uh, and I'm in the zone uh, enjoying myself when I'm teaching others Um, so my view of this is that if I'm able to do my job well I'm benefiting the patient I'm seeing there and then. If I'm able to teach my students and trainees well, then I'm helping them provide better patient care. If, however, I lead the educational portfolio in one big organisation, then I'm hoping that I can do something for my colleagues of faculty and staff to be able to have or provide a better learning experience 
for everybody who comes through our health board. And, and the impact of that is far wider than what I can do in one teaching session. And therefore, I chose to go through, to continue teaching myself uh, or, or personally practicing as a teacher. Uh, and I'm lucky that this is one of my areas where I've insisted on maintaining allocated time for specifically for teaching others, as well as my time for strategic educational leadership. Um, and through doing that, I progressed from being uh, just a trainer and a teacher uh, in my own department, teaching some medical students, some dental students, to taking on educational roles. So I started with uh, an undergraduate role in um, in, in medical education as an honorary uh, lecturer and then progressed to honorary senior lecturer. I've also done uh, postgraduate roles such as local faculty lead for training um, with HEIW or Health Education and Improvement Wales which was then known as Wales Deanery. Um, I've also done the role of uh, undergraduate lead uh, or undergraduate director um, before an honorary senior lecturer before becoming the Associate Medical Director for Education. And outside the organisation, I was at one point the Training Programme Director for Oral Maxillofacial Surgery and the Specialty Training Committee Chair. And now I'm the Deputy Head of School of the Welsh School of Surgery. Um, so that has come from being interested in teaching, but also taking my educational um, aspirations a step further and completing a master's degree in education and a postgraduate certificate in medical leadership and that has helped me progress in educational leadership um, what has also been helpful is doing other leadership roles within my organization uh, like a clinical director uh, for head and neck services because that has helped me develop my leadership skills further um, and this I found is a transferable skill to have to be able to bring it into the educational domain. Fantastic. Does that answer your question? It does indeed, okay. yes. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and as you mentioned there, you've had a lot of um, kind of clinical commitments and professional commitments and no doubt some um, personal life commitments as well. How have you balanced all those spinning plates, so to speak, um, during your career and have you come across any challenges? So I don't think you'll stop facing uh, challenges. Uh, the, the, the day we stop is hopefully uh, the day we decide to hang our boots and, and retire. There's always going to be challenges and there's always going to be curveballs and, and if anybody tells you that they're on top of their game and they've got nothing in their to-do list, uh, they're either doing something very right uh, or they're having a son because nobody, I'm yet to find that holy grail. Um, and, and there's a great deal of uh, self-help books and podcasts and, uh, and, uh, and TED Talks that would tell you to prioritise and, and get yourself organised. But it's almost impossible in this day and age to be able to do it all. I think the most important thing is knowing what makes you tick and what you want out of this um, life or career and it's very important to enjoy what you do um, the second most important thing is looking after yourself and being kind to yourself and 
prioritizing your needs and those of your family and loved ones because when it comes to it and if you're ever in a situation where you're having uh, a health issue or, 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 or a personal problem or, or difficulty um, you need to be strong enough to look after yourself or indeed look after your family and those who will be there for you are your family and your immediate family and loved ones and therefore you need to prioritize them um, because work will come and go and however much you give to work and when you finish when you clear your inbox and when you've ticked all the items on your to-do list people will find you more things to do and you will find yourself more things to do so therefore just focusing on yourself and having the ability to have a balance and being able to be kind to yourself is very important um, if that means a, a dog walk or uh, going out for a run or doing whatever it is that makes you tick uh, like you know, I don't know cooking or traveling or or making cake for everybody uh, these are all things that you yeah. can do and uh, and 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 whatever makes you happy and makes you satisfied because you'll never I don't think that I will never be in a position to be on top of everything I need to do at any one time. It's all always an evolving list and you do one thing and another thing is, is required. But um, learning to make sure that you're able to say no to, to yourself of the desire of taking on more things but more importantly to others as well who, who are asking you to do more things is not a bad thing um, and finding the thing that makes you happy or feeds your soul is also very important the luckiest of us are those who are able to find a vocation or a job that they enjoy um, and that is very important you may be familiar with Ikigai or the reason for being, which is a Japanese concept, I understand. And, um, and it's about the, 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 the four things that makes the perfect job. Okay. Um, and, and these are, you need to find something that you love and you have passion for. Um, it helps if you're good at it. Um, and it also helps if it is something that your world needs and if you've got those three then you're almost there um, the fourth thing is also important it needs to pay you reasonably well and if you've got those four things then you have found the holy grail of the best or most rewarding job and if you have job satisfaction then you're halfway there really um, and despite all the pressures and all the issues we're having in the National Health Service these days, uh, I think myself and many others will take solace in the fact that we're educating the, we're educating the next generation of, of teachers and doctors and scholars and researchers. And that in itself is very rewarding. And, uh, and, and, it, and it keeps us ticking and it keeps us with the desire of doing more and giving more and that's an interesting way I haven't heard of it uh, said that way before but no absolutely if you've got a job with those four components you're, you're, 
you know, you're doing well, really. Yeah, you? yeah. I, I think it's attributed to Confucius, who's uh, a, a, a Chinese scholar as, uh, and philosopher, as you may know, and uh, find find a job you love and you will not have to work a day in your life. Definitely. Thank you. Um, moving on, um, we've re- heard uh, on our podcast series from a range of educators. Uh, few of them have been surgeons. Have you found getting involved in medical education as a surgeon difficult or has it come with benefits? Is, is there any element to being a surgeon that you thought has made life easier or harder to get into education? Um, I don't think I, I don't think it's a hindrance, hindrance being a surgeon. Um, it's just you need to have the ability to... Um, compartmentalize your role as much as possible because there's a lot to be learned from surgeons because as you know some surgeons have this um, sort of reputation that they are difficult individuals and uh, and I I would like to think that there are many surgeons who are coming through these days who will break that mold and who are not really um, necessarily have this persona or this this misconception and I think it's important to inspire the next generation of, of surgeons not to be of a certain um, sort of stereotype, if you like. Uh, so I don't think it was a hindrance. I don't think it was uh, it was harder being a surgeon. It's just you have to be on top of your game and be able to prioritise. And uh, what has helped me immensely is when I took on this education role for the health board, um, one of my bosses, um, who was the deputy medical director at the time, uh, sat with me and, uh, and and she said to me, we would have to look at your job plan because you it's unsustainable to do this on top of a very busy clinical work. And I'm grateful to uh, her, uh, to Dr. Ruth Alcalado, um, for... for doing that and, and sitting there with me and helping me see um, what the what what my how I need to prioritize my week and how I need to dedicate time to education and having a day a week of medical education for my medical education leadership role has helped me greatly because although it spills into the other days of the week my unless it's urgent and important needs to be dealt with straight away, I tend to be able to put everything I need to do relating to medical education in that one day a week. And then the rest, either in my sort of flexible time or in between my other busy sort of clinical schedule. But having a day a week for that has helped significantly because it's a dedicated day. And unless I'm on call, I don't have any clinical commitments to erode that. And that's very important. No, having a structure does help. Okay. But having the yeah. flexibility is also helpful within so that structure. Having um, fixed flexibility. Quite, <laughs> yeah, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, no, but um, give, um, I know that we've got um, our early career educators are listening to the podcast. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to find that fixed time to, to explore education um, are there any um, any advice you could give to those early on in their education careers with regards to things that they could do to try and 
get towards that end point, yeah. so to speak. Sure. So a couple of things to mention here. Um, find your local education department in your local hospital or surgery or wherever it is you're working um, and hook up with them because there will be ample opportunity for you to teach and get stuck in and get involved in teaching. Also, try and be involved in a teaching program or a teaching um, portfolio with others so that you have a structured way of developing your teaching and learning skills. For instance, we offer in our health board the Teaching Skills for Doctors course and that allows you the opportunity to have a two-day interactive um, teaching skills course but it also is backed up with your ability to teach and be mentored and peer-reviewed while you teach over the coming eight to ten months. This will enable you then to apply to the Academy of Medical Educators membership. It You, you become, by completing that course and a portfolio of, of uh, teaching medical students over the coming few months, that will enable you to apply directly to a membership level um, uh, affiliation with the Academy of Medical Educators because it's a recognised and badged course by the Academy of Medical Educators. So that's one opportunity that we offer. It's not unique to us. I'm sure there are other opportunities elsewhere. But that's something to do and being involved in teaching early. So that's one thing. The second thing would be uh, it is finding a mentor who's good at teaching, who will take you under their wing, who will help you with maybe doing more teaching and learning um, on an informal basis, whether it's bedside or small group, to help uh, healthcare professionals and healthcare students teach, uh, sorry, learn in, in, within your organisation or, or your work setting. Fantastic. Um, a final question to close. Um, where do you see yourself progressing next? Do you see... Um, a pathway in the future or are you happy where you are at the moment what what do you think's in store in the future gosh that's a very good question um i i genuinely feel that my educational journey has helped me achieve my very own um ikigai and um being able to help inspire others who are coming through to become better clinicians and better learners through becoming better teachers is paramount. Um, I have been involved in educational endeavours elsewhere in the world through my role within my organisation, uh, the British Association for Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons, and I'd like to be able to share my educational leadership experience with others um, elsewhere in the world if I'm ever given the opportunity. So I think um, in terms of progression here in the UK um, I've learned and taught and I'm very happy with where I am. Um, I've, I've reached the highest office in my health board in terms of um, educational leadership uh, and I uh, am relishing this role and this opportunity. Um, I'd like to work with other organisations potentially elsewhere in the world to help 
whether it's through charities or, or educational foundation, to help maybe areas in the world that are less privileged and have less access to good uh, education and healthcare to develop better educational systems. But that's, uh, that's in the very long run. That's not imminent at the moment. And if the podcast is still going in the future, it would be fantastic to see what, what goes on there because that sounds um, excellent, you know, really ambitions right. and aspirations there. So um, so I think that brings us a lovely, um, to a lovely close uh, on this episode of Medical Educate Talks. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think that could have run on for at least another half hour or an hour. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for no. giving me this opportunity and I hope this was helpful to, to you and your listeners. Thank you ever so much. Uh, for those listening um, at home, we hope you've taken um, some useful um, anecdotes and thoughts away uh, from this podcast. If you would like to join the Developing Medical Educators group, then please visit the Academy of Medical Educators website for more information. For those joining us at the conference today, uh, we will see you back after lunch. Thanks again. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.